If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. So our producer here on the show she really loves listening to odd stories, reading about them, podcasts, and then helping us to all learn about them. So this latest one involves a mystery that has haunted the Caribbean nation of Grenada for 40 years. Back in 1983, the country's leader, Maurice Bishop, was killed, but his remains have been missing for decades. Now, I think some of us remember 1983 was a tumultuous year in Grenada history, right? An invasion by the United States as well. But this is all now part of a podcast for the Washington Post newspaper called The Empty Grave of Comrade Bishop. And the host, Martine Powers, is with us now. Good morning, Martine. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being here to talk about this. How did you get started on this? Like, why does this story fascinate you? Well, so my parents actually live in Grenada. Um, they're not originally from there. My mom's from Trinidad, but I have a connection to the West Indies. And about six years ago, I started to hear kind of whispers about this mystery. It's the kind of thing that like my friend's parents would, or my, my parents' friends would come over um, and they would you know, talk about it after dinner, like, oh, I wonder, I wonder what actually happened there. Why, why are these remains missing? Why have they been missing for so long? Um, and so at some point I started to, to think like, well, has, has anyone actually really looked into this in a more rigorous way and really tried to report this out? What could have happened to these remains? And to, to be clear, it's not just him, his cabinet members, some of his um, allies and supporters, uh, they were all murdered together, eight people, um, and all of their remains are missing. And that's what makes this mystery even more more kind of surprising and jaw-dropping. Yeah, it's kind of intriguing. Okay, so give us some history here about Maurice Bishop. So Maurice Bishop was the revolutionary leader of Grenada, um, prime minister for four and a half years. Um, he led this revolution that overthrew essentially a dictator, um, and he was incredibly popular. Um, people, uh, or at least many people in Grenada loved him. He could also be controversial. Um, but the thing that kind of put him on the global radar was that he was a socialist. I think if you asked Americans at the time or um, people in the American government, they would say that he was veering towards communism. And that was what kind of got him uh, involved in the Cold War, right? That Grenada was allied with the Soviets and with Cuba at a time when the U.S. cared a lot about those things. And so that's sort of what was swirling around this, this populist leader back then. Okay. And so then how was he killed and what happened after that? So he was actually killed in essentially a coup. Um, his there, there was uh, you know different factions in the government, and um, his his uh, a faction led essentially by his former deputy prime minister. Um, they uh, ended up executing him and some of the other cabinet members who were allied with him in what a lot of people describe as a power struggle. And some people push back against that narrative and say that um, it was a little bit more complicated than that. But I mean, it's a pretty grim scenario. This this prime minister and his cabinet members basically lined up against a wall in this court right in the downtown or this courtyard at, at a fort right in the downtown of Grenada. Um, and they were killed with machine guns by by essentially their own soldiers. 
Wow. Okay. I do feel like this is a, a lot of kind of forgotten history. And it was so, why was Grenada so significant at that time, Martine, enough to prompt a U.S. invasion? Well, it, it's all, it all goes back to the, the Cold War kind of, um, uh, you know, you're either with us or against us attitude. Um, because Prime Minister Maurice Bishop, he was really good personal friends with Fidel Castro of Cuba um, and Cuban um, teachers and construction workers um, were being sent to Grenada to, ha- to help kind of build up the country. And so for that reason, it's, it seemed like Grenada was an ally of Cuba and therefore the Soviets were also their ally. Um, the Soviets were sending in, uh, you know, like agricultural equipment, things to help, and also were sending in weapons. And um, from the standpoint of the U.S. government, they thought that Grenada could be kind of this little Cuba at the other side of the Caribbean. And that, you know, if if the Soviets continued to send weapons over to Grenada, that you could end up with something like another Cuban Missile Crisis. And that this tiny country with less than 100,000 people actually seemed incredibly important to American national security, or at least that's what they were saying at the time. Right, because we forget that this was the tail end of the Cold War, right? This is, I mean, it was only another couple of years before Mm -hmm. we started to see some big changes. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Though I think a lot of other people would point out that this wasn't just about communism, um, that this was also about what it meant to have a Black country with a Black leader that was kind of standing up to the U.S., Prime Minister Maurice Bishop, he was well known for giving these incredible speeches. I mean, he's just a really like uh, powerful orator. But a lot of the subject of the speeches was about the U.S. and about how the U.S. is running around giving speeches to everybody else about human rights when like the U.S.'s own record on human rights is so spotty and um, that America wants to kind of control everything that's happening in the Western Hemisphere. But um, he he often used the term, you know, we are we are nobody's backyard, right? That Grenada is often described as this tiny country in America's backyard. But he was insistent, we are nobody's backyard. America can't tell us what to do. Um, and that was, and especially for a black prime minister, um, I think that is also what got people, you know, what put Bishop on the map, but I think might have rubbed some feathers uh, right. the wrong way here in the U.S. So 40 years later, you're saying there's still no idea actually what happened to his remains? To say that there is no idea might be a little uh, oversimplistic. So somebody knows something is what you're saying. (laughs) Yeah, yes. Yeah, there have been theories over the years and there are there's evidence to suggest various um, kind of chains of custody or things that might have happened to these remains. Um, And that's kind of the subject of the podcast, right? We go back and we talk to people who were there on the island at the time, both Grenadians and Americans, because there have been questions over the years about whether the U.S. might have had some role or responsibility for the the disappearance of these bodies. And so we go back to try to report it out and follow these like potential leads to try to figure out what's possible and what's not possible. And can you give us a hint of, like, are people still willing to talk about this or is it just a time in history that people in Grenada would rather not talk about? I think it it was all over the the spectrum, right? Like, I think that there are some people who... um, live this or have, have lived this so much over the years that they don't want to talk it, about it anymore, that it's been a very painful memory for them. Um, and especially for, for Grenadians who, um, you know, lost someone back then or experienced really traumatic things. Um, and the same is true for some Americans, right? We talked to uh, uh, people in the, in the U.S. military who end up having some kind of connection to this and to hear their memories. I mean, it's, it's really difficult for them too. Um, the 40 years is also a long time. And we're just a part of the, the challenge of this is that people just forget 
get a lot. And so there are other people that we've talked to where we're like, hey, we have a photo of you here, like standing at this place. And they're like, well, I, I have no memory of that. Um, and so uh, that's kind of the challenge of, of something like this, where you're going back 40 years later to piece together what happened during this like few weeks in the aftermath of this invasion. And do you feel like, you know, and here, here you are bringing it to a wider audience, Martine, do you feel like in, like in the United States, did people kind of they remember that? It seems like such a long time ago, that invasion of Grenada. Yeah, I would say that unless you're a history buff, if you're under the age of 40 or you, you weren't alive at the time, almost no one I know is aware of this, right? That, that the idea that, wait, we, the it U.S. invaded this tiny. Yeah, it was a big deal back in 1983. Um, and so, yeah, when I talk to um, slightly older people, oftentimes they're like, yeah, That's kind like, of whatever you. happened to that? That's kind of you to say, <laughs> put it that way. It's just, just slightly, you know, over, over the age of, or, or people who would have remembered 1983. Um, but I think that there is this feeling of like, yeah, whatever happened to that? Like, that was such a big deal for a few months. And then at least the U.S. sort of forgot about it. But the thing about Grenada is that, you know, they have never forgotten, right? Like, this this completely turned this country upside down. And the legacy of the U.S.'s actions here um, still play out in really hmm. tangible ways. Oh, so fascinating. Martine, thanks for your time this morning. Thank you for having me. Well, that's Martine Powers, podcast host for the Washington Post, The Empty Grave of Comrade Bishop. And if you are of a certain age, and okay, I'll admit it, I am, I do remember the U.S. invasion of Grenada. It was their first post-Vietnam War kind of military incursion. And it was success, like for them, it was successful. They did what they set out to do. Therefore, kind of, I think the U.S. felt a little bit boosted by it. Uh, but it was this tiny Caribbean nation, all laid out in fascinating detail in this podcast. You should definitely listen to it. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, time for us to check in with our Scott Shantz this morning, who is, I guess, planning his Halloween costume for next week. Scott? Uh, I'm working on it, Simi. I'm, I, like, I have a backup idea just in case, you know? Can I just say I admire you because I'm not a creative person when it comes to Halloween costumes. I love the idea, but I see sometimes pictures of costumes. I go, oh man, I wish I'd thought of that. Like people are so clever. Yeah. And to me, it doesn't need to be elaborate. Like one of these big over the top, took a month to create it things. As long as it feels like smart, to me, like sometimes I would wear one, one year I wore a costume and nobody even knew that I was wearing a costume except for a few people. And when those people sort of give you the nod of acknowledgement, then it's like, oh, OK, they get it. You get it. And then I feel like, you know, but to everyone else, they're like, why didn't you dress up? And I'm like, well, I am dressed up. You just don't get the reference. I like that. You know, so it doesn't need to be a big elaborate so you're thing. You're a bit of a costume snob is what you're saying. If you want to put it that way, those are your words, not mine. I get that vibe. Like if I was uh, at a party, which I wouldn't be, but if I was at a party <laughs> and somebody said that to me, I'd be like, huh, all right, whatever. I'm done talking to you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and that that's, you know, I, I try not to be like uh, that way about it, you know, like, oh, it's, well, it you wouldn't like you, you wouldn't get it, you know, uh, but the people that the do, worst. the people that do get it. I get a, I give them a little extra right. nod of acknowledgement. You right, know? Well, I hope, geez, Scott, I hope I would pass your test. Yeah, Simi, you would because we like a lot of the same stuff. All right. You know? Well, I don't know. Sometimes it takes me a moment to put these things together. But let's talk about what is most popular this year. Yeah. I'm guessing that anything having to do with the movie Barbie is yes, probably going to be pretty yes. big. And see, this is my thing. Like, just to fin- put a bow on the, on the previous conversation there, I don't want to show up at a party dressed as Ken and the person that I'm with dressed as Barbie and everyone at, at the party 
there's like six other people dressed as Ken and Barbie. That to me is worse than having no costume or people not understanding your costume is having the same costume as a bunch of other people. And that is what's going to happen if you dress as Barbie, because all the Barbie things, of course, are the huge talk for costumes. Unless you put a twist on it in some way. Uh, yeah, I think you could do that. And Barbie is one of the ways that you could do that because there are so many different versions of Barbie, like Western Barbie and like workout Barbie and president Barbie. And these are all variations of the Barbie costume, but I guess it's possible that you could just dress as president Barbie and people would just think you're dressed as the president or just wearing a suit. You know, sure. I like if I had to pick one, I would definitely pick Weird Barbie, which I understand is the number one choice this year. Weird Barbie is number one. Yeah, uh, Western Barbie is number two, which is different than Cowgirl Barbie, which is number three. I don't understand that, but okay. Workout Barbie is number four, and then President Barbie is number five. This is from a Google Canada search, by the way. So it's probably just that people typed in Western Barbie and then typed in. Uh, cowgirl Barbie. Um, another really popular one is uh, Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey. I've seen a few people already oh, dressed as that. that yes. You know, it's like a pretty easy costume to pull off for a lot of people. So that's a popular one. And then for kids, these are interesting costume ideas because it's just kids. Uh, ghost, witch, skeleton, and cat are the big ones. And uh, my daughter, very excited to be going as a witch. You know, and I don't have the heart to tell her your costume is really basic. You're boring with your witch costume. Um, excuse me. What kind of a dad are you? Well, that's what I'm saying. It's like I'm not telling her. You I don't have the heart that. to tell. That's what I'm saying. I don't have the heart to tell her. I'm not going to tell her because she's six. But when she's older, like when she's 16, if she's thinking of going as a witch, I'll probably have a conversation with her about how she's not creative oh, enough. You are a high pressure dad. Okay. Uh, so with the, but witches are always popular. Yes. At Halloween and and ghosts and like skeleton cat. All those things. They're just really like easy okay. things. And how old am I? So looking at this, here's, I'm going to make fun of myself right now. Okay. okay. So I was looking at this list. These are Google searches yes. for the top trending costumes. And you were pointing out the kids ones. And yep. number one is the ghost. Number two is the witch costume. Number three is the skeleton costume. Number four is the cat costume. These are all run of the mill kids costumes. And then number five is, <laughs> number five is the Bowser costume. Yeah. And so how old am I that I went, Bowser? Like from Shanana? Like <laughs> I mean, I, like I, yes, you're I old. A, I know. You're very I old. really had a moment. But yes. I'm also old and I I knew the reference. It's just come full circle, right? It's Bowser from Super Mario Brothers. I understand that now, which, yes. Yeah, like Nintendo <laughs> that came out in like 19, <laughs> 1985, you know, or so, uh, 41. And that reference speaks directly <laughs> to me. But Bowser is cool again because of the Jack Black of Mario Brothers movie and stuff. Uh, I mean, Chris Pratt. Yeah, but Jack Black plays Bowser. Right. And Chris Pratt okay. plays Mario. But yes, good good distinction there. And uh, just quickly, top trending adult costumes, Zorro is number one. Uh, zombie cheerleader, number two, the Barbie ones, and then race car driver for adults. Okay. Interesting, interesting for the adults out there. So I will look forward to hearing what your costume is all yeah, about. Yeah, I have but... a backup costume, and then I'm trying to come up with something more creative. Okay, interesting <laughs> to hear this. Uh, let, let's hear your, what is the most creative costume you've ever come up with for Halloween? I would love to hear about this, genuinely, because I'm so bad at this. This is Mornings with Simi. Time for us to check in with Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun. Good morning, Vaughn. And good morning, Simi. Now, Vaughn, did you hear about the cruise ship season? It was, I feel like we need to talk about this because you and I discussed this many times during the pandemic about the fears for the cruise ship industry. 
Oh, yeah, and those furs were genuine. Uh, Victoria has done very well off cruise ships as well. And it was the intersection between a provision in U.S. law and the pandemic. So U.S. law says that if you're going to carry passengers or freight between U.S. ports, so say Seattle and Juneau, Alaska, uh, the ship has to be built in the United States. Cruise ships are not built in the United States. It's too expensive. They're built elsewhere because it's cheaper. And so when Canada closed its ports to the cruise ships during the pandemic, it meant that the regular cruise ships running between Seattle and Juneau, Alaska, and elsewhere in Alaska, uh, couldn't run because they couldn't stop in Canada to qualify. If you stop in a Canadian port, you're not going between two U.S. ports, and the law doesn't apply. So we... Uh, initially, John Horgan scoffed at the possibility the Americans would do anything about it, but he underestimated the Alaska congressional de delegation. They put fast-tracked legislation through the U.S. Senate and the U.S. House of Representatives, and President Biden signed it. And what the provision did was it basically exempted the cruise ship industry from the legal requirement for the ships to be built in the U.S. so they couldn't go between two U.S. ports. That was the law. Uh, we managed to dodge the bullet on this, Simi, because it was a one-time thing. They just changed it for one season. There was talk, Simi, of making the exemption permanent, but uh, trade unions are powerful in the United States and the president is uh, very closely aligned with them and the unions didn't want a permanent exemption because they thought it would undermine the long-term prospects for the U.S. shipbuilding industry. So uh, that's what happened. It was one season only. Uh, the law expired. Uh, the cruise ships came back. The pandemic faded. And along with it, the issues. And as you say, Simi, we're thriving in a way we haven't before. Although I did appreciate John telling you that also Seattle is thriving. We're yes. still competing with Seattle. And I don't know if we're going to be able to uh, sustain the same rate of growth as they do down there. Right. And especially, and we'll see if this even lasts, right? We don't know yeah. if this is like pandemic, people were saving up to do this. And if it'll, next year will be the same or the year after will be the same. That's a, a good question. You know, one analysis that I've heard and seen is that, well, aging population, baby boomers, they like the safety of the cruise ship. They just take their luggage on board and they don't have to drag it around. They can go ashore. They can travel around. Uh, I mean, all of the amenities are wonderful. Uh, the flip side of that, of course, is uh, worrying about, uh, you know, people describing a cruise ship as a giant floating Petri dish for respiratory illness and that. So yeah, I don't know how that's going to work in the long run. I uh, heard you say, Simi, you're going to try the different kind of cruise, which is the one uh, that goes on the rivers, Yeah. where when you dock in the town on the river, it's a fairly small group that comes ashore. It's not a city. And so that might be one of the, one of the fields of cruising that, that does work. But it, at the moment, 
There's a very high interest in the cruise ship industry here on the West Coast. It's terrific news for Vancouver and for Victoria. Also, yeah, you should come with us, Vaughn. We're going to do the D-Day beaches. <laughs> We're going to have a great time. Come on, come with us. <laughs> <laughs> you handing out free tickets or do I have to enter the contest and answer a skill testing question? Uh, yeah, you might have to enter the contest on that one. <laughs> uh, let's talk about what else is going on here. The big announcement yesterday had to do yeah. with the fast track recognition of international credentials. Yeah, this is another very ambitious piece of legislation from the David Eby government. You know, we had the short-term rental thing and other bills this fall. It's not been a light session. And this is international credentials recognition. It is the province stepping in and fixing a problem that has been trying to fix a problem that's been known about for years, which is there are so many barriers to a foreign educated doctor, architect, engineer, social worker actually getting to practice his or her profession here in British Columbia. Uh, they took a stab at it with nurses and doctors. We've now got a bill, Simi, that does it for 29 professions, and it tries to sweep away some of the most ridiculous barriers you've ever heard of. My favorite is the catch-22 barrier that you can't actually get credentials and approval to practice here in Canada until you've had experience here in Canada. But how the hell are you supposed to get the experience if you're not allowed to practice? So that, yeah, there are also incredible requirements for language testing and you've got to go back every year and get retested, even if you're fluent in English. So the bill tries to sweep all that away and I will say, Simi, that the intentions are good. These problems have been known for a long time. The legislation is ambitious in that respect. But as with a lot of other things that the EB government has done, watch and see how it plays out. All right. We will do that. And also we have, of course, more Surrey to talk about. Uh, the premier says, you know, the provincial government is aware of additional costs associated with this and... We'll be there at the table to support Surrey, which was interpreted by those of us familiar with the English language as a pretty strong hint that the government was willing to put more money on the table in order to get a deal, that it would, uh, was aware there were more costs and uh, it would be there to support Surrey. Uh, two days later, Mike Farmer comes out and says, no, 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 he's the bad cop in this good cop, bad cop act. He comes out and says, no, there's no more money. There's no more money. That's it. $150 million, transition funding, take it or leave it. Uh, so after that, yesterday, um, I asked the premier during his news conference, uh, could he clarify the government's position? And he said, no more money. That's the clip uh, Global's using. It's been on your news this morning. No more money. That's it. $150 million in transition funding. Uh, and that's it. And then he says, you know, Surrey should come to the table. And of course, the thought that crosses one's mind is, if there's no more money, what is there to talk about? Well, yeah. Well, and you get into the hints. So the premier says, well, you know, uh, first of all, Surrey could come and tell us, uh, you know, what all these costing figures they have, because we haven't seen them. And then he says, you know, Brenda Locke, uh, she's made a couple of really good points that she's, Brenda Locke has tried to clarify the numbers that Doug McCallum, the former mayor of Surrey, wouldn't discuss about costing. He said, she, I commend her for bringing these figures forward. And then he says, you know, for example, uh, training of police officers. Well, we could talk about that. We could talk about who's going to pay for that. So I listen to all this and I go, 
So he, he tells us there's no more money, and then he hints, well, if you come to the table and you've got your numbers in order and you've got a good case to make that Doug McCallum didn't tell everybody what was going on out there, and you want to talk about who's going to train the new Surrey police force and who's going to pay for that, well, we can talk about that. Hmm. So <laughs> I'm, I'm trying like, to figure out what this actually means. Like I'm trying to read it, between the lines here. So is it is it possible that when you talk about police training, well, that's something that might not yeah. just benefit Surrey. They could make the argument that sure. this is going to benefit all municipalities. Yeah, and we didn't get into it, but uh, there's a capital cost issue associated with the new police force. So how are we going to pay for all that, right? I mean, I, I think what we see here, you know, every expert in labor relations who's ever spoken on this issue, an expert in negotiation will always say the first thing is stop negotiating in public. Get to the damn table, right? And and sure, you may have a few preconditions, but don't have too many. I'm, one of BC government's obvious preconditions is that Surrey, stop fighting this in court. We're not going to go there if you're going to keep trying to overturn this in court. And that's a fair provincial government position. But if you're at Surrey's end of it and you're going, well, are they coming to the table with more money or aren't they? And what are the preconditions? Um, again, I, I say to you, uh, this is not any way to negotiate whatever you think of the respective positions of the two, of the two sides here. Okay, but this obviously isn't the end, right? No, like, there's no, going to be no. more on this. Like, happily for us, Simi, it isn't the end. Uh, you know, it, it'll keep you and I going with things to talk about, uh, because there's new things every day on this one, and I, I cannot predict where this is going to end, except it's increasingly clear that it is going to cost a lot more money than we've been told, and between them provincial taxpayers and Surrey ratepayers, in some cases those are the same people, uh, are going to foot the bill. We don't know what the split will be. I think a big part of what's going on here, not discussed by either side, is trying to stick the other with the political heat for what all this is going to cost. And also, it'd be interesting, is he saying, come to the negotiating table, but he's not, he himself is like, I get the feeling that what Surrey Mayor Brenda Locke wants is a face-to-face -face meeting with Premier David yeah. Eby, and this doesn't sound like she would necessarily get that. No, I, I think that's true. Uh, you asked Mike Farmworth about that. He said, well, I've met with her. Yeah, he did meet with her once, right? But yeah, I mean, she's... <clears throat> she wants FaceTime. She wants to be... Yeah, she yeah. does. And, but she also wants to stick the provincial government in the mind of Surrey voters, she wants to stick the provincial government with the blame for what this is going to cost, right? I mean, right. she is, she's bargaining in public too, in a kind of backroom, backhanded sort of way. Uh, she's saying, for example, that she wants the provincial government to indemnify Surrey for all costs associated with this. Well, you're not going to get that either. But again, that's a public bargaining position. Uh, you know, I mean, one way through this would be for the provincial government to designate its negotiator, uh, say, uh, Jessica McDonald, a former head of the public service, and Surrey to designate its negotiator and send them to the table. And if they can't reach a deal, you know, give them both a mandate. Uh, don't necessarily disclose it to the public until they're done. 
and try to work out a deal. And if you can't work out a deal, well, you know, there's always an arbitrator or uh, some expert in negotiation out there to help. But that's not happening. The one thing the premier said yesterday is it's very difficult to talk about this because we're not talking. And he's right about that. And Brenda Locke says, we don't see any point in coming to the table because they're not treating us with respect. And she has a point about that. I mean, this is now a product of two political entities that are both trying to pass the blame buck to the other one because they don't want to take the political heat for what all this is going to cost. Very true and gives us something to talk about. Vaughn, thank you for that. Bye-bye, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. The event can still continue. For some reason, that organizer waited almost six weeks to raise the issue at the council table. It feels a little bit more about a campaign to to get council to give a grant outside of a process rather than, I think, just come forward and be constructive and positive about it. All right, so that is Township of Langley Mayor Eric Woodward, who was on the show with us last week. We've been talking about this issue of the holiday light display, which is called Christmas in Williams Park. It's been going on for 30 years. It's run by a volunteer society. We heard that the volunteer society said that they'd been told that the township was no longer going to provide support. It was in jeopardy for this year. We got we got a little back and forth going. And as you heard, the mayor was very pointed in his comments about the volunteer society. Now, this whole matter came up before council council last night. And I know what really people out in that area want to know is, listen, is this thing happening or is it not happening? It's a great community event. People love it. So first off, let's find out what was actually decided. So Barbara Sharp is with us, president of the Christmas in Williams Park Society. Hi, Barbara. Hi, how are you? I'm good. Thank you. So listen, is it happening this year or not? Yes, we were very excited last night that the uh, council actually approved allowing the staff to support the society for 2023's Christmas in Williams Park. So that's a very exciting piece of news. Okay, but? But um, we are in jeopardy for 2024 because council clearly was not uh, going to support a couple of different motions that uh, one of the council members tried to bring on, um, Councillor Kim Richter, Uh, asked to have the event brought before the 2024 budget discussions, and she wasn't even able to get a seconder on that discussion. But the council did support moving forward for 2024 budget discussions, the proposed new light walk event. So I'm concerned we're in jeopardy for 2024. I'm super excited we're here for 2023, that we can bring this back to the community but um, I'm, I'm hoping that all of our supporters out there, we had like 1,300 all, all in a week of signatures on the change.org petition. But I, I really want people to stay tuned next year because uh, of, right. of the concerns I have. Yeah. Uh, okay, okay. So we know that it's happening this year. That is great news for the community. But Barbara, yes. when we talked to the, the mayor last week, I mean, he made some pretty pointed comments about the society yes. and the volunteers. So tell me, where, where it seems like bad blood. Like, where does this come from? And what does this mean for this actual, like, do you have to change things? Do you have to get more organized? What's going to happen for next year? Well, there's um, all kinds of, of, of questions and commentary that came up last night at the meeting. I made a delegation, and then I had a lot of questions after it. And I thought the delegation explained a lot of the history. For example, the lead-in for your uh, suggesting we waited five to six weeks is simply not true at all. 
we got the letter on the 11th of September. I met for coffee with a staff member that had sent me the letter on the 22nd of September. I called emergency board meeting on the 28th of September, wrote the letter from the society's decision to go to council on the 29th of September. And then I had to wait till last night to be heard because the council didn't meet for almost a month. So uh, we were we were ready to go in a couple of weeks, and it's not our our choice that we couldn't get in front of council before now. But we were getting fairly criticized for using social media to you know I'm going to call it rallying the supporters, which is what almost anybody does these days uses change.org or uses social media to try to get people to make sure people in a decision making capacity change their decision. So I, I I was quite shocked at how um, almost personal this mayor was making uh, this uh, right. whole thing against the society. So I, I'm concerned about that. Okay, so how do you change this then moving forward? Because in the end, we are talking here, Barb, about holidays, like yeah. you know, peace, love, happiness, all of that, and and moving forward, having this for the community to enjoy. So what's going to happen over the next year? Like, does the society have to change anything? Will you apply for grants? What's going to happen? Well, some of the council members um, were intimating that, you know, they were asking us, could we use like, you know, the money and just go, you know, out and hire people to do this instead. And one council member uh, was able to um, elucidate that. That's not what we were looking for because we actually need uh uh, you, you call it intellectual knowledge, number one, from the staff that's been setting up the event for the last five years. We need to know how they do it, well, you know, like the whole process itself. So we need that. And um, so there's four new members uh, of this, four, is it four or five new members of this council that have never been on council before. And so we're hopeful that we might be able to sit down and have conversations with some of them so that they can see you know, more of the information from the society itself, how long it's been around, the kinds of things we do, the fact that it's been so supported over all of these decades that we've been involved with this event, and myself uh, just over a decade alone, right? So that's one thing. And the motion last night said that we would meet in, um, you know, January, whatever, the society and staff. And and I'm a bit unclear about that part of it. I don't have any trouble meeting with staff, but I don't under. I think because these are new members, they don't understand that we've met many, many times with staff over the years. So I, the the insinuation that you know all of a sudden staff didn't want to work with the society is it, it came as quite a shock because we've always worked really well. I mean, we we buy them a big pizza lunch uh, for the setup event, and uh, you know right. we just but, but we really. Show our support, right? I know, but things clearly have to change. I guess they want a more formal process. So then I guess Mm -hmm. we can't make it as loosey-goosey as it's been in the past, Barb. So do you see (laughs) that changing over the next year? Then you think, okay, if that's what they want, they want a serious operation, we can run that. Yeah, we do run a serious operation, though. We had it separated between staff and the society. And um, if we need to uh, make some changes to how how that part of it's operated, um, we can try to uh, seek out volunteers again. I'm certainly going to go back to uh, there was so much support on Facebook to see who wants to volunteer and get some of them to maybe come out even this year if they're interested and work with staff. I think uh, that's what we used to do. And it, it seemed to work quite well from our side, but, um, you know, maybe, maybe they're, you know, maybe they're prepared to look at 
the staff working with volunteers again. I'm, you know, okay. we, we just have to look at that for sure. Okay. So if people are interested in helping out, then they should check out your Facebook page. Absolutely. Please check out the Facebook because that's how we communicate because it's the, the simplest way to communicate these days is through social media. All right. Well, well, hopefully it'll come off without a hitch this year. I look forward to seeing it. Barb, thanks so much for your time. I sure hope you come out. You'll really enjoy it. <laughs> I sure I will. I love a good light display. Thanks for that, Barb. <laughs> okay. Have a good day. That's Barbara Sharp, president of the Christmas in Williams Park Society. It's a big light display, holiday light display that's been going on for 30 years out in the township of Langley. Had a bit of a close call this year, but council meeting last night decided they will provide support this year. That is a bit of a turnaround. 2024, well, that's up for discussion. But for this year, residents out Langley Way, you will be able to go to see the Christmas in Williams Park light display. On a way in, send me at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. I don't know about you, but ordering pizza is always a discussion at my house. Where do we order it from? What kind of pizza? But the biggest factor, of course, is pickup or delivery. Because how fast it gets to your house before you eat the pizza is critical. If it sits in the box for too long, well, it's just not the same, is it? Why is that? After 60 years, why are we still using the same method of transporting pizza? Surely, with all the technology that we have out there, that we could do this better, right? Well, we're going to talk about that this morning. Scott Wiener is with us, a pizza tour guide in New York and author of Viva La Pizza, The Art of the Pizza Box. And oh, by the way, Scott is also the Guinness World Record holder for the largest collection of pizza boxes. Good morning, Scott. Good morning. Scott, I have to ask you, how does one start collecting pizza boxes? Well, I was already running pizza tours in New York, and I figured, well, it's up to me. I need to know everything I possibly can about pizza. And I read a stat that two-thirds of all pizzas eaten in the United States are are somehow served out of pizza boxes, whether they're takeout, delivery, or anything. And I thought, well, I got to know about pizza boxes. So I just started collecting them. And one thing led to another, and then Guinness World Record. Oh, yeah, sure. One thing led to another. How many boxes do you actually (laughs) have? I have about 1,841 boxes currently. Wow. Okay, and there's a similarity to them, right? Because a pizza box is a pizza box. Well, a lot of people would think that, but there's, there's two things that lead a box to be collectible. One is the artwork on the lid of the box, which is not as consistent as you might think, because I have 125 different countries covered in the collection and everybody has a different motif, color scheme, and even printing technology. But then the secondary characteristic, which is interesting, is the technology of the box itself. Not every cardboard box is built the same. Okay, but are some cardboard boxes better than others? Because we still have a problem with the transportation of a pizza in a pizza box. Yeah, which I totally agree with. I mean, the great irony of my life is that I'm obsessed with pizza. I have this collection of pizza boxes, but I personally never eat pizza out of a pizza box because once the pizza enters the box, it steams. Steaming is not good when you have a bread component and pizza out of the box will never taste as good as the pizza would have tasted before it went in. So some boxes are better than others at transporting the pizza, but most of them are still pretty mediocre in that sense. I think it's just, there's sort of this public contract that we've all just decided that we're okay with pizza being a little bit worse 
when it comes out of the box if it means that it's going to be conveniently delivered to our front doors. Okay, why can't we improve it, though? Has there been effort to do this? There has, but you have to remember that the people buying the boxes are not the end user of the box. It's not the consumer. It's the pizzeria. And if the pizzeria can spend 29 cents a box, then as soon as there's a better box that costs 34 cents, it's sometimes not worth the extra few cents because people aren't expecting that much of a difference. The end fact is that what drives pizza box use is price. So the best pizza packaging that I've ever seen is something like $6 per box. What? And Nobody's paying yeah, for that. Way beyond what any pizzeria will spend. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Unless you could do like a reusable version of that, Scott, don't well, you think, right? you said that. That's the box that I'm thinking about right now is a German box called the Pizza Cycle. And it's a two-piece, two identical pieces of plastic that groove together, and they've got these air vents and it's reusable. The whole point of it is you spend the six bucks up front, but then you can reuse it over time. But it also means that if I'm going to buy 10 pizzas for a party, then I'm going to have to spend $60 in just yeah, the boxes. No, that's and now not I have happen. 10 of these plastic things sitting around. Yeah. That's not going to happen. Okay. So in the end, we are still stuck with the pizza box because I guess we have made that trade-off in our mind that we, we expect this from how pizza is going to taste. Yeah, we did. I, pizza is such a convenient food and one of the early home delivery foods that I think there's just a mental switch that we can't flip back. As much as you and I might want that, it's probably not going to happen anytime soon because of that expense. Also, maybe we need one company to maybe take the lead on this, right? Like if there was more competition in the delivery pizza industry, maybe that would make a difference. I do think if one of the big global chains picked up a better box, it would lead the way. But those global chains are the ones least likely to do it because a one cent increase in the box price could be millions of dollars on the bottom line. But Scott, like I see the ads for Domino's, right? Which is, they're the big leader in the United States, aren't they? They are. So they've got these new cars, right? Where they have like special ovens in the cars to keep the pizza warm. And like they do all these things to make it seem like delivery is important. But in the end, the box is still the box. That's correct. They're doing all these things to really save themselves money in the long run because the shortest distance between placing the order and getting the pizza in your house is better. And if they can do it in these cars, they can have the pizza on their way to your neighborhood before you've even thought about ordering it. Okay. So what about the corrugated cardboard? Does that help? Corrugation is great. It's definitely an improvement. And that's something that was introduced in the early 70s where actually you mentioned Domino's before. Domino's was a big pusher for the corrugated pizza box. And because it has multiple layers of paper and air, it's a better insulator. It's sturdier. They stack more neatly in the pizza shops. The Domino's founder, Tom Monahan, really liked that they stacked neatly. But that's the box that you and I see every day. It's all corrugated. Hmm. So in the end then, for you, Scott, and your advice to the rest of us is just try not to order delivery? (laughs) Like, just try to eat it there. My advice is the pizza will always be better in the pizzeria. But if you order delivery, the best thing to do is to ask them to not slice your pizza. And then when it arrives at your house, if you slide the pizza, the entire pizza, onto the rack of a preheated oven around 300 Fahrenheit, 
and just leave it in there for maybe two minutes. It will wake it back up. You can slice it on your own countertop and it will taste like fresh. The best way to do it. I'm doing that next time. Scott, thank you. My pleasure. That's Scott Wiener. He's a pizza tour guide in New York, author of Viva La Pizza, Art of the Pizza Box, and Guinness World Record holder for the largest collection of pizza boxes. This is Mornings with Simi. I looked at 20 files in child protection, in services to families, and in services to kids who are in care. And 14 of those files, they showed where visits were required from social workers every three months, and there was no documentation to show any of these homes were visited. And as a result, one of them died. All right. We've been talking about the Ministry of Children and Family Development recently because of a story from Katie Hislop at the TIE.ca. And that was Katie right there talking to us about it. She revealed the findings of an audit that showed in one service delivery area where a child was killed and another critically injured, support workers weren't even doing the most basic of paperwork or home checks in more than a dozen cases of children in care. And there were some shocking findings in here. In fact, the audit also found that only 27% of critical incidents of injuries of kids in care were even reported to social workers within 24 hours. And this was a follow-up audit. And the result was even worse than the first one that had been done. So obviously this raises so many questions, right? Like how can we keep going on like this? It is why the opposition has been calling for the resignation of Mitzi Dean, BC's Minister of Children and Family Development. Well, Minister Dean joins us now to talk more about this. Thank you very much for being here. Good morning, Simi. What do you say about the findings of this audit? Because honestly, when you read through them, they are quite shocking. Yeah, well, uh, thank you for that question. And I just want to start by recognizing, um, you know, that we're having this conversation because of the horrific tragedy of the child who died in foster care. And, um, you know, I absolutely understand the pain and the outrage that is being felt across the province because of that. And I want to convey my deep apologies and condolences to everyone who's been impacted by that tragedy. And of course, we need to take measures and make sure that something like that doesn't happen again. Um, and I agree with you, you know, the auditors at local office did find a very serious lack of documentation, and that's not acceptable. And uh, what that means is that our policies and procedures in the ministry are not even being followed. Now, the audit in 2022 was actually um, ordered by the ministry because as soon as we learned about the injuries of those children in foster care, the ministry took action um, and immediately was concerned about practice in that in that um, team. And that meant that we needed we knew we needed to go in and do a deeper investigation. Um, and I am a former frontline worker, and I know what basic social work is. Um, and I know that the children in this particular situation were failed terribly. And that an audit with findings of such a lack of compliance really is letting, letting the children use and care down. Right. So if you're a social worker and you know this, then it does seem like the system is broken because that's not one person not doing paperwork. That is numerous people not following the rules and clearly the bosses also knowing that wasn't happening. Like, how do you fix something that broken? Yeah, there are definitely some measures that we have taken in the two and a half years since um, the particular tragedy. As soon as I became aware of the issue as minister, I directed my staff to make sure that all children in care in the province were being seen according to our policies and procedures and that all homes where children are being placed are properly assessed and that they could reassure me and show me that this wasn't happening anywhere else in BC. So we have improved oversight. We have made changes to how issues are reported and who actually investigates where there's concerns with regard to practice. 
we have enhanced the oversight across the whole of the province to make sure that all children using care are being seen. And the latest step that we've taken is actually to hire an external consultation company to come in and to review the measures that we've taken over the last two and a half years to make sure that they're actually um, meeting our intentions, to make sure that the measures that we have taken are ensuring that um, social workers are, are following policy and procedure and following good social work practice, which means building relationships with children and youth, being able to um, have those private and regular meetings with children and youth, to hear from them and know how their home life is and to make sure that they're being safeguarded, nurtured and loved and well cared for. Are, are you saying, is there now a system in place like a, a that would hold, put up a red flag if there is no paperwork coming in? If there's an area like this that is not submitting the correct paperwork is there a notification system where somebody higher up would say, hey, we have a problem here and we need to do this, deal with this right now? Yes, there is a better system in place now for that oversight of making sure that social workers are following policies and procedures. We've also taken other measures to provide more support to social workers so that they have more time for building those relationships as well. And, you know, the levers that I have at my disposal as minister are legislation, policy and budgetary measures. Um, and so, again, in the last two and a half years, we've been making transformative changes in those areas. So last November, I'm sure your listeners will recall, we passed historic legislation unanimously in the legislature to support the um, inherent jurisdiction of Indigenous communities to um, be able to deliver child welfare services to children, youth and families who belong to their communities. We know that we need to continue making improvements. We know there needs to be transformative change and we, we've started that and we're continuing to um, ensure that we are supporting all of the children and youth in our care. But how can you support, like how can you say that, okay, this is going to work if it's the same people, right? If it's the same essentially system and, and the same people who are not doing the paperwork and making everything, now they're going to do it. How do you know that that's actually going to happen? Well, the staff involved in the uh, particular circumstances where there was the tragedy are no longer involved with the ministry. And what we've been doing um, over, actually over the last five years, but especially over the last um, two and a half years, is making sure that we are supporting social workers in concentrating on and prioritising the relationships um, that they have with children, youth and families and, and caregivers as well. Um, we're making sure they have the training that they need. We've improved consultation for them. As I said, we've changed the oversight so that we actually have much better systems and measures in place to make sure that we are able to monitor and support social workers in fulfilling the um, policies and procedures that we already have. We already had the policies and procedures in place. But they weren't being followed. Um, even the policies and procedures don't mean anything, yeah. right, if they're not being followed. Which is not acceptable, and that's the work that I have um, that I immediately directed staff to put in place because it's not acceptable that we have policies and procedures that aren't being followed, and it's also not acceptable that um, you know even if social workers are following policy and procedure, it's not being documented so that we can't actually track and monitor um, where we're where we might have gaps in oh, the system. What does it mean if we say not acceptable? Like, what are the consequences of that? Do, are people fired? Do you switch service agencies? Does somebody lose contract? Does somebody lose money or their job? Like, what are the consequences of finding out that this is happening? Yeah, uh, thanks for that question. I mean, there are all those different measures. Um, and of course, I, I, I can't um, be advised of any HR issues. But, you know, we have a very robust public service. 
Um, we want to be able to support social workers, make sure that they're given the, the tools and training to do their work. But there are measures and steps that can be taken, as you say, with regard to a contracted agency, with regard to individual um, social workers. And, you know, this is really, really serious and this is really important work. And we need to be using those measures if they're required. What do you say, though, to the opposition when they say you're, you're not doing the job and you should step down? Well, over the last two and a half years since I first learned, learned about these injuries, I have, um, I have been very clear with our staff that we need to make improvements in the system and that they need to be able to have ways to reassure me that all of the children and youth in British Columbia who are in care are being seen and that we know and, and can verify that they're in safe um, and nurturing and loving families. And, you know, I, I have used all the levers at my disposal um, which includes, as I said, legislation, but also policy and budgetary measures. So, for example, we're, we're supporting extended families to keep kids out of care. We now have the lowest number of children using care in over 30 years. We've actually harmonized caregiver rates so that out-of-care placements receive the same support as foster care placements. And we increased those caregiver rates by up to 47% in budget 2023. So, um over the last few years, we have actually been making significant systemic changes every year under this government, whereas not under previous governments, um, the budget for my ministry has been increased, reflecting the importance that our government gives to making sure that we support a very um, healthy and um, uh, a, a very supportive and safe child welfare system. Right. But Minister Dean, do you agree this can't happen again? Like we can't get another report from the Minister of Children and uh, Youth or, or from the Children of Representatives saying that this is happening again. Like this can't continue on like this. I absolutely understand where that question is coming from. I absolutely understand the outrage. That's absolutely what I've been saying to our staff as well. Um, you know, we have to have all of the systems in place to make sure that this cannot happen again. What a terrible tragedy. How these children were failed so poorly by the system. Um, and so um, that is a, a really strong message that I have sent for sure. And we know that we will get a report from the representative for children and youth and we will pay very close attention to those recommendations. And hopefully... Um, you know, what the what the representative's office will find is that we have been putting measures in, um, especially in response to this learning lessons from this tragedy and more broadly as well with our legislation and with our changes in policy. And as I said, we have hired an independent um, contractor to come in and to evaluate the measures that we've taken to make sure that they're going to deliver on the results that we want, which is to, to know that on any given day, Children and youth who are in care of the ministry are safe and loved and well cared for. Oh, hopefully that is what we hear and uh, we'll maybe chat with you about that when that happens. Uh, thank you for your time on that. Thank you so much, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, our Scott Chance had a very interesting day yesterday, and we're going to learn all about it now. Good morning, Scott. Hi, how are you? I'm good, thank you. I'm fascinated to learn more about this. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one of my core values, Simi, and I say this like not tongue, I mean this, is that like consenting adults should be able to do whatever consenting adults want to do. I think like that is kind of a, a, a framework that I use to sort of help figure out some of the complicated issues that we face in society, and one of those things is sex 
sex work. Um, it's a huge trade. People often joke that it's like the oldest trade in the world. And uh, there is a conference happening right now in Vancouver, the Provincial Sex Workers Conference. And it was happening yesterday and today. And I had the opportunity to go down and sort of figure out what they're doing and what it was all about and what happens at a sex workers conference. So I got to speak with Helena Seiferling. She's the executive director of a not-for-profit called Living in Community. They're also a registered charity and they're working to change the conversation that we have around sex work. They collaborate to improve the health and the safety of sex workers and address community concerns. So she was heavily involved with this conference, putting it on and sort of emceeing and moderating. And I started just by asking her to tell me like about the conference and what happens there. Well, we're here for a two-day provincial conference that we are putting on. Uh, this is a conference focused on the needs and the rights of sex workers, so the, the collective movement of people from all across the province and beyond the borders as well. Um, there's about, I think, 160, 170-ish people here today and tomorrow um, gathering to really kind of meet each other, build relationships, learn from each other, share all of our experiences and determine collectively what the next steps look like for the sex worker rights movement here in BC. Sex worker rights movement here in BC. So for somebody who is like totally unfamiliar with sex work, sex workers rights, can you unpack that a little bit? Sex workers rights movement? Sure. Well, it can be quite a complex topic and there's a lot of different, I think, perspectives people bring to sex work as well. Um, there's lots of different moral views, lots of legal views, there's, there's lots of lenses to it. Um, but I think really at the core of it is we believe sex work is work. Um, we also know that people often are doing sex work under you know, all kinds of conditions. There's lots of factors that affect the options that people have access to um, in all facets of life, really, right? So, I mean, many of us, we could think about what are the jobs that we do? Was it all because that's exactly what we wanted to do always every day we wake up loving it? Or was it maybe a combination of things we had access to, opportunities that we saw available to us, things we were interested in, things we were good at? Um, so all that to say, there's, there's a lot of reasons why sex work is a really um, viable option for a lot of folks and a really good job for a lot of folks. Um, and it also exists on a spectrum. And so the, the folks here today and tomorrow at the conference, I think we might not all share the exact same definition of sex work or the exact same vision for where each of us as individuals want to be. But what we share is a belief that everybody as a consenting adult should get to decide that for themselves um, and that sex workers should be able to work you know, the same way that those in other industries do and to work in groups if they want, um, to unionize, to have access to, you know, workers' compensation and um, arbitration, all the things that other folks have access to. When we talk about sex workers' rights, what are some of the things that uh, we're, we're working towards getting? Mm -hmm, absolutely. So our conference here is focused mostly at the provincial level. Um, with that said, obviously the biggest barrier I think a lot of folks would name is the laws here in Canada, which are at the federal level. So that that's a bit tricky. Um, and I won't go too much into the laws, but obviously just to say here in Canada, the laws are such that it does make it really difficult for a lot of, a lot of folks to do sex work safely, um, to work with other people maybe to keep themselves safe, to advertise their services, to you know have, have thorough conversations ahead of time about what you're consenting to and what you're not consenting to and what services you're agreeing to. All of that becomes really difficult under the current laws. But with that said, the, the, the model that we take at Living in Community and the 
uh, lens of this conference is is kind of within that framework of all right there's federal laws there's a push for decriminalization that's happening and in the meantime what can be done at the provincial government level and at the municipal level in particular to change maybe some policies some bylaws are there different ways that governments and also nonprofits and funders can fund projects um, how can they be more supportive to to different projects to different frontline organizations to make sure that folks are getting the services and the resources they need um, maybe regardless of what uh, whether or not the federal laws are exactly how we'd like them to be um, there are sessions at the conference focused on things like you know uh, yeah there's a session on funders and how they can decolonize their funding and be maybe a bit more open and flexible with frontline organizations there's a session on um, sex work and race and how that intersects uh, there's a session on sex work and disability and how that intersects and, and affects people's experiences there's sessions on the housing and shelter needs of sex workers on the anti-trafficking movement and how that maybe does or does not come into play when it comes to the sex work movement um, there's a keynote session about sex work as a labor issue there's a keynote session about a research project that was done here recently in the Vancouver area um, interviewing sex workers about their needs and their experiences so really all of those examples just to say that the sex worker rights movement I think has a lot of different pieces to it there's a lot of areas in which we want to see change made obviously there's legal changes there's healthcare, there's access to services generally but um, we hope that through other, you know, obviously other events and other things as well, not just this conference, but we hope that this conference can be one of the places that people can come together to talk about all of those pieces, maybe even more than what's on the agenda, and really yeah, bring all of that in together to identify, all right, in each of those areas, what is the thing we need to do next? Where's the energy? Where's the priority? Let's focus on that. Okay. What do you think that the public or people in general get wrong or misunderstand about sex work? Mm, yeah, that's a great question. I think one of the main ones for sure is around the difference between sex work and trafficking. Um, so anything around trafficking or exploitation. And I think understandably so, people, you know, no one wants to think of somebody else being exploited or being trafficked or being forced to do something that they don't want to do. So I think people often come from a really good place and they think, oh, I've heard a little bit about this thing. I think it's this thing I've heard about and that doesn't seem good. So I'm, I'm worried about that, right? But um, there's just a lot of misconceptions, I think, about uh, sex work and trafficking and exploitation and conflation between all of these things. Um, and so, as I mentioned, we have a session here at the conference that will get into that more. That's definitely one of the main misconceptions, I think, is, is people might think all sex work or any time that money or goods or anything is exchanged for sexual services, that's always exploitative or it's always non-consensual or it's always forced. That is certainly not the case. There are many, many folks who are choosing this work, who are happy to do this work, who it really, really works for them and their lifestyle. They're consenting to it. So um, I think that's one of the main misconceptions for sure. Um, something we like to say sometimes is you've probably met a sex worker. You've probably worked with one. You've probably talked to one. You might not know it. That's Hannah Seiferling. She's the executive director of Living in Community. Uh, they're a not-for-profit uh, registered charity that deals with uh, sex workers and sex workers' rights. And that's happening. The sex workers, provincial sex workers conference right. is happening yesterday and today in Vancouver. Really interesting to go that, there. That yeah. was really illuminating, though. The point that she made, too, is you probably know somebody and you just don't realize it. Yeah. Well, I asked her, you know, how big is this industry? And she was like, honestly, we don't know, but it's way bigger than you think it is, you know? Like, 
like the the Clearly, expanse of it. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course, not everyone at the conference was a sex worker. There was lots of government and you know um, resource people and all sorts of people there who have a, a stake in this. But just you know, there, there's a huge conversation to be had there, and this is happening anyway. So we might as well have the conversation around it. As you say, world's oldest profession. You right? got it. Yeah. There's a reason why they say that, Scott. Thank you. Yeah. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, there's a lot of focus right now on what is happening on university campuses. The protests in support and against what is happening between Israel and Hamas has really brought a spotlight to political activism on campuses. But the thing is, there's nothing really new about this. Historically, there have always been political movements on campuses. And we're going to talk more about that now with our guest, Dr. Leonie Fleischman, who is a senior lecturer at the City University of London, a lecturer in international politics and human rights. Dr. Fleischman, thank you for being with us. Thank you very much for having me. When you see what is happening right now with all of these protests and the, you know, for and against and everything, are are you surprised by this? No, not at all. University campuses have long been hubs of political and social activism. Students have always been involved in various causes causes globally, um, not just Um, the tensions between Israel and the Palestinians. We saw historically students involved in the civil rights movement in the United States, the anti-Vietnam War movement. In South Africa, during uh, the anti-apartheid era, students were very active as well. So it's definitely not something new. It's a tradition that we've long seen on university campuses. And why do you think it has developed that way? Is there some kind of historical reason why these places seem to be hotbeds for this? Yes, um, I think we can point to a few factors as why, uh, for why students are so active. Um, I think on the one hand, they have the disposable time to be involved in political causes, unlike older generations who might be working. Um, so they've got that time, that energy to engage in the various causes around the world. There might also be a sense of disillusionment. They, see, they might see that their future um, is not the one that they, they want to have. In the anti-war campaigns, for example, you see that element of um, people not wanting to be conscripted, for example. Um, So there's an element of students seeing and not agreeing with what's going on, and they have the space to do so. And that's really what universities are for, to engage in the world and to develop um, ideas around what is or isn't happening. So I think it's really kind of a right time and space for this sort of activism. Right. So this is just the topic right now, but there have been many such topics that we see kind of explode across university campuses, aren't there? Yes, absolutely. This is the, you know, the tensions have risen and um, we can see that when tensions do rise around a particular cause, then activism will mobilize around it. So obviously at the moment, with what's going on in Israel and in Palestine, um, the spotlight is there. So that's why we see the activism around this on campus. But historically, um, and today, we see different causes uh, students mobilizing around. Climate justice movement um, was um, particularly um, centered around students and young people with Greta Thunberg. Um, So it just happens that right now the focus is on Israel and Palestine, but there's plenty of other causes that students are involved in. Does this one seem to be more, mm, I don't know what the right word is here, like it just, it does seem to be, uh, there's more awareness to this one. There definitely seems to be a lot more 
um, sharpness of opinion on this because there's certainly a bigger spotlight on these people who are protesting this time around. And it's, it's much bigger news, I feel like, that we're seeing this on university campuses. Yes, I think you're right. I think this one is a particularly contentious issue. It's a very difficult one for people to deal with. Um, it's very polarized as well. And mm-hmm. um, there seems to be this sense that you're either pro-Palestinian or you're pro-Israel. And yes, there are plenty of people who are somewhere in the middle who are um, focusing on the rights of people in general. But it is quite a polarized issue. Um, and it is really the hot topic of our day in terms of conflicts going on around the world. Um, it's been going on for so long, it's seen as intractable, and people are very passionate on either side. And I think what we've also seen on campus is some real challenges around um, student welfare, student community, whilst also um, protesting for the cause that you might believe in. Right, but you make a point in that this is something historically we have seen, um, you know, whether it's protesting war or climate change, regardless. But this time around, there seems to be greater consequences for people who are protesting on this. You know, you've seen companies say, I'm not going to hire those people. Like, there does, there does seem to be more um, potential consequences for those beliefs this time around. Yes, um, I think that's right. And I think what you find is on, on both sides of the spectrum, students feeling that their voice isn't being heard or their voice is being um, contailed or maybe even they're fearing for their safety. So you have lots of examples of Jewish students um, and Israeli students saying that they're fearful um, for their safety on campus, feeling um, either verbally or even physically attacked for certain comments that are um, coming out as a result of what happened um, in the last few weeks. And at the same time, Palestinian students or those who support the Palestinian cause um, expressing concerns about restrictions to their speech um, and that their protest is being curtailed. And I think university um, leadership are really struggling between the balance of free speech and the balance, um, balance of free speech with the safety and welfare of their students. And this cause seems to really, really rile people up. In particular, and so you mentioned though something interesting there about the, there's a new generation here that we're talking about of young people, of uh, Palestinian students who are in university, of young Israeli students. They've grown up under a different time, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for Palis- young Palestinians, they don't know um, a situation other than the one we see today in terms of occupation, in terms of the situation in Gaza. Um, with the um, Israeli blockade on Gaza and the rise of Hamas. They don't know a time prior to that when Israelis and Arabs and Palestinians actually lived um, together or there was um, less um, overt, at least, um, violence. This time, at the moment, young Palestinians have only experienced um, this life. And so those who are in support of the cause or Palestinians in the diaspora, um, it's really their chance to speak up against what Israel is and has been doing. Um, And you see this sort of um, radicalization isn't necessarily the right word because we might not see it as a radical cause per se, but a more progressive view or a more um, um, emotional view than perhaps former generations who have also been um, fighting for this cause, but growing up, as you said, in a different circumstances where perhaps the two-state solution was on the horizon or dreams of um, peace whatever that means, was um, in people's eyes. And the situation is just much more desperate, I think, today. And those in support 
I was just, that and feel that. I was just thinking 30 years ago, there was that dream on the horizon, right? There was the potential for this, but in the last 25 years, it is very clear that that has changed. Absolutely, absolutely. We've reached 30 years since the um, Oslo Peace Accords um, this year, and um, there was that hope for both peoples um, that some sort of an agreement would be, be reached. Palestinians would have their own state. Israelis could live with um, peace and security, but that has been completely dismantled for a whole variety of reasons that I'm not sure we have time to go into. <laughs> we do not. Today. Um, <laughs> but um, the desperation is clear, the hopelessness is clear on both sides. And I think for Israeli Jews and for Jews around the world, what um, the attack from Hamas, the atrocities that was caused, has also broken something um, and created um, perhaps hopelessness on their side as well. Certainly is interesting. All right. Thank you so much for your time on that this morning. Thank you very much.